We're in our series this morning on the book of Acts, and we've been in this series for quite a while. We're in episode 13, which translates to Acts chapter 11. So if you have Bibles with you and you want to turn over to Acts chapter 11 and, and get ready for that, you can do that. Um, as we've been studying the book of Acts, we, we kind of know that this is a, um, a book that by tradition was written by Luke, and um, by our best sort of scholarly guess of timing, it's likely that Luke wrote the book of Acts shortly after A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70, um, after Jerusalem was destroyed, and after Jerusalem was destroyed and, and Christians were dispersed, um, the church really began to experience quite a bit more persecution in the early part of the second century and all of that. And so it's possible that Luke is writing these stories down as a way of telling the believers and congregations all around the different region now scattered and dispersed, young, struggling congregations. Luke is writing these stories down to say, hey guys, let me tell you how this all began. And let me remind you of what we're about and what it means to be the people of God. The book of Acts as a whole kind of addresses the question that is uh, really a question that's resurfaced even in our own time. And maybe it's a question that shows up in every generation. And the question is, what does it mean to be the people of God? Why on earth are we still here? Why don't we say yes to Jesus at an altar call and then get raptured up into heaven? Why is it that we, the people of God, are still here? What does it mean to live out as the people of God here on earth as it is in heaven? We started the series shortly after Easter, and it's appropriate because Easter, this moment of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, is not Jesus going home like E.T. went home. This is the ascension of Jesus. Is Jesus sitting on the throne. It's the gospel writer's way of saying, look, God is now king of the whole world and he is king through Jesus. And so the church is now this colony, if you will, of the kingdom right here within this world and this age. So Acts tells us what it means to live out this way. This morning, we're looking in, in Acts chapter 11 at the word repentance and what it means to, be, to repent. We're going to spend some time exploring what it means to repent, and then we'll spend some time exploring why we would repent. But before we even get there, chances are when you hear the word repent, you think, uh-oh, I picked the wrong service to come to because I don't like this word and I'm not coming. And, and I don't know how this exactly works, but I've been told that as people, we remember more how we feel than what was actually said. We remember how we felt versus what we heard. Now, this is every preacher's, you know, a sort of worst nightmare because people remember more how they feel than what they heard. And so maybe you grew up in church where they taught repentance in a good way and they said good things and correct things and true things, but all you remember is that you felt lousy. And all you remember is that every time the word repentance showed up, you just felt like, repent, you better turn or burn, you know, and it has this sort of negative thing. And so when you think of repentance, you don't think life, you think heaviness and, 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 and guilt trips and someone twisting my arm and, and the church kind of on a power trip and all of this. So we, we don't probably have really positive associations with the word repent. Now, we're in the middle of summer. Anybody taking road trips this summer? You know, driven somewhere, you're on your way, you know, or maybe you're about to. Um, I grew up in Malaysia. We, we, we didn't spend a lot of time driving for road trips. You know, kind of how it works with the rest of the world is in America, 100 years is a long time. 
but to the rest of the world, 100 miles is a long way, you know? So Americans are, we, we're great about driving, we don't care about driving, but, but you know, most of the rest of us are, don't love driving. But I'm adjusting, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that we're, we're going to go anywhere, we're going to drive. Well, last summer I was with a friend and we were up at a retreat up in the mountains near Estes Park, and there's a retreat center called St. Mallow's, and it's, a, it's actually a Catholic retreat center, and, and uh, Miroslav Volf, who's the chair of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School was giving a little retreat and I was there and, and like a kid in a candy store as you can imagine and, um, and so one evening I'm there with Pastor Matthew Ayers who's uh, our, our local ministry pastor here at New Life and, and, uh, and he and I after one of the evening um, sessions were like let's go into town and see if we can find you know, a snack or get something to drink or whatever and, we're go- and we're, we, we get out of the retreat center and we turn left and about 15 minutes down the road we start thinking I swear the town was right here, you know. And, and, and then something comes over us, especially as men. Something comes over us that says, I know it's this way, and I'm going to keep going this way until we find it, because it is this way. And so we kept driving, and there's just nothing anywhere, and everything's closed. And we're, we saw something this way. And we're driving, and then 30 minutes into it, 40 minutes into it, we realize we're running out of gas, you know. <laughs> And so now all of a sudden the priority is not food and drink, but a gas station. And finally we find a gas station, thank God, and we fill up and then we're like, we, we don't know where this, let's just, let, are you tired? I'm tired. Let's just go back. And so we turn back with a sort of defeated attitude of like, we never found it. And then the next morning in the light of day, we were driving out of the campgrounds and we realized it's not this way. It's that way. Have you ever been there? Or you're on a road trip, you're like, I, I just know, it's just another mile, I bet it's just 10 more minutes, babe, just let me keep, you know, whatever it is you're telling your wife, just let me keep going, it's this way. I don't have those arguments in my home because we all know, Holly and I both know she has the better sense of direction. Um, but anyway, so, so it, it makes me think of that, um, that scene in, in planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, where he's exhausted, he's trying to get home, and he's driving the car, and he's on the wrong side of the road, you know, and everybody's honking and waving and then flashing their lights and like, you're going the wrong way. And he's like, no, I... And, and, and you don't know whether it's the madness of exhaustion or the madness of stubbornness or whatever it is, but it's like, no, I'm going this way. And then all of a sudden, the lights of that semi-truck, and he's like, no, I'm going the wrong way. Repentance is essentially turning around, but so many of us don't want to do that because it's connected with a shamefulness or maybe a negative experience or maybe just at the very root of it that we don't want to say that we're going the wrong way. And sometimes maybe out of the madness of stubbornness or the madness of tiredness or whatever it is, we say, you know what, I just, if I could just give me another year at this, I can fix this, I can change this, I can do this, I can make it all better. And sometimes it, there are moments in life where the lights of the truck flash in our heart and say, you're going the wrong way. This is not going to end well. Acts 11 is a, a bit of a continuation, actually, from where we were last week, uh, which was Acts 10, and the story of Peter going to Cornelius' house. And so pick this up with me in Acts 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, too, had accepted the word of God. A major turn in the story of the book of Acts has happened. The gospel, as it turns out, is not just for Jewish believers, but it is for everyone. And we've seen it cross all kinds of barriers. Last week, 
was maybe one of the great barriers that it crossed because it came to a Roman centurion. It came to Cornelius' house, and now Peter has some splaining to do. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and shared a meal with them. But Peter began and explained it to them point by point. See, the gospel has now reached beyond itself. The church has reached beyond itself. They're preaching Jesus above all else. And it's all fun and games until someone goes and eats with a Gentile. It's all, it all sounds wonderful and there's Pentecost and there's gifts and miracles and healings and woo! Until someone says, wait a minute, you crossed a social boundary. And so last week was all about what the gospel does to the people that we call, quote-unquote, outsiders. And as we kind of think about this, we, want, we need to see that the gospel truly is transformative in a social way. It does reconfigure what we think are the social boundaries. See, Peter, last week we saw, he kind of said this thing where he said, you know what, I've never eaten that meat, I've never eaten that food. And it turned out that, that his self-righteousness, the thing that you use to justify yourself, just a chair that fell, the thing that you use to justify yourself often becomes the thing that is a way of keeping others out. It becomes this barrier. So Peter now has to explain to the rest of the church in Jerusalem what happened. And so he goes on and he recounts this story. This Cornelius story is already the longest narrative in, in the book of Acts. And now we're being re- the story is being recapped for a third time. I think this is an important story. So he recaps all that. Skip with me down to verse 15. And then, this is Peter talking, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. So Peter's saying, look, what happened to us at the very beginning has now happened to them. And in case you think I'm making stuff up, let me remind you of the words of Jesus. And then he quotes Jesus and he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What Peter is doing here is he's saying, look, we experienced what Jesus promised. And now they, them, the us and them, they are experiencing what Jesus promised. Verse, rest of verse 17. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift He also gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder God? I wasn't even trying to save them. <laughs> and when they heard this, they ceased their objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted the repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Underline that sentence. That's kind of the key sentence for us this morning. God has granted the repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. Kind of an aside here, if you're thinking about how to ponder or meditate on the Scripture, sometimes what you may do in a devotional reading is you may read a passage and there may be a a line or a sentence that really jumps out at you you and you think, "This this is important. And so what you could do is you could say that phrase over and over again, emphasizing different words each time. So you could say, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Or you could say, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Or God has granted repentance that leads to life. Or God has granted repentance that leads to life. And each time you say it differently, you begin to hear something differently from the Word of God. This sentence is a key sentence for us because what Luke is telling us is that the repentance that the Gentiles experience is something that leads to life. Right away, we're being asked to think differently about sin. Right away, we're being asked to think differently even about salvation. 
Because it's one thing to say that the gospel transforms us socially and transforms us as a community, breaking down barriers. But sometimes in all the emphasis on that, we forget that the gospel transforms us personally. It does something inside you. It changes you. If you grew up in kind of an evangelical sort of thing, you probably heard that side of it your whole life. The gospel transforms you. It transforms you. It transforms you. But I can carry on with my prejudice and my discrimination and my judgments and my barriers and all this stuff. And so we've needed to hear that the gospel also transforms the community of God. It breaks down barriers. It redefines this and all of this sort of thing. But this morning, I want us to swing back over on this side and say, the gospel transforms the individual. It absolutely does. And the phrase that Luke uses is the repentance that leads to life. Salvation is not about going from good to bad, or from bad to good. It's about going from death to life. From being dead to being alive. Salvation is not about going from bad to good. It's about going from dead to alive. See, lots of other religious systems have morality as the end goal. And so if we can just devise this system to help you become a better person or a better this or a better that, then that's the goal is to just get you from bad to good. But Christianity begins quite a bit before that. Christianity says even before we can talk about you changing your behavior, and we will get to that, but even before we can do that, we need to talk about the fact that you're dead. See, now this, of course, is uncomfortable because it changes the way you think about sin. Sin is not just, well, I messed up or I was kind of mean or I snapped at him or I, I yelled at her or whatever. Sin all of a sudden says, you know what? You have a sickness that leads to death. You have a, an infection that's working its way to destroy you. That deadness is our condition without Jesus. And deadness is a worse problem than badness. Badness, you could try to just sort of learn better habits and better tricks. But deadness, you can't fix. You can't undo that. Now, I think C.S. Lewis used an example something like this, and I'm sure I've modified it and maybe made it worse or better. I don't know. But, but, but imagine a mannequin for a moment. A mannequin looks good. It, it, you may have a mannequin that, that has the perfect chiseled abs and it's like the, the epitome of like the, 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 the perfect man, you know. But the mannequin is dead. It's not living. It doesn't have breath. It cannot move. It cannot speak. It can't drive a car. Now me, on the other hand, I'm not the perfect specimen of, of a human being. I don't have a six-pack abs. I won't be modeling for Banana Republic anytime soon. But I'm alive. And this is where we make the mistake, is if we think that salvation is about, first of all, at the heart of it, going from badness to goodness, then we sometimes look at other people and we say, well, they look good. And their behavior is good, but they're not alive yet. And then you may look at someone else and say, well, they're, they're still kind of a work in progress. I don't know, that, that, that guy's supposed to be a Christian? He doesn't look so good. He doesn't act so good. Right, but he's alive. Something new has begun in him. Salvation is not about going from bad to good. It's about going from dead to alive. The repentance that leads to life. So how does this happen? What is repentance? The hinge that kind of turns us from death to life. The hinge that allows the door to swing open and God to bring us to life is repentance. What is repentance? 
We might think of it this morning this way, that repentance is turning. Repentance is turning, and it's turning away and turning toward. Turning away and also turning toward. Turning away and turning toward. The early Christians, very early in the first few centuries of Christianity, the, Christian, um, the church fathers began to write about a method or a process for growing up, for become, to become like Jesus. And they talked about it, they used different words, but, but they, talk, they called one phase of it, they called it the active life. Now the active life is not like, yeah, I run six miles every day and I you know, hike the incline. I, the active life, what the, what the fathers meant by this, the active life is the act of turning away. This is essentially all the stuff related to turning away. And so they talked about how the active life begins, or, or sometimes the word ascetic is used, the ascetic life is used to describe, it begins with repentance. It begins with the moment when you say, God, I need you. I'm, 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 I, I, I can't do it on my own. It begins that way, but then it sets you on this trajectory. There were these men in the 4th century called the Desert Fathers. These were, these were people who were disillusioned with the church because they felt that the church had, gone, had become secularized as soon as it became the official religion of Rome and all of this stuff. And so they went out into the desert to study and to uh, meditate and to ponder. And, they, and the, the, the Desert Fathers, the mystics, talked about the active life, this ascetic life, and they described eight deadly thoughts. And you're like, okay, but, uh, is this different than the seven deadly sins? Actually, a few centuries later, a, a Western bishop tried to summarize the Desert Fathers and he kind of misunderstood, and a few things got lost in translation, so it went from eight deadly thoughts to seven deadly sins. But what the Desert Fathers understood is that turning away doesn't begin with changing actions. Turning away begins with turning away from deadly thoughts and thinking. Now, having those thoughts themselves, they would have said, is not the sin. But how you turn either toward those thoughts or away from it is part of the journey. And so, some, I won't list them all for you, but some of them are things like gluttony and, and lust and some of the usual suspects. But then some of them are words that, words that, that we've conveniently forgotten as 21st century Christians. A word like avarice. What's avarice? Oh, it's the thirst for more and more stuff. Oh, no, no, we call that free market. <laughs> or a word like vainglory. Vainglory? I call that developing my personal brand. The fathers call that a sin, a deadly thought, a thought that when it begins to take root in you, turns you in a bad way. And so they said there's a turning away. So this active life is where they focused on the turning away. And then the second thing that, that, that these guys began to describe is what they called the contemplative life. Now, for a lot of you in the room, you're like, oh, contemplative life. That sounds much better. I don't want to think about deadly thoughts and all that. I mean, that's just, it's kind of weird, but I just want to, you know. But both are necessary because you're turning away from, and then you're turning toward. And in the contemplative life, they talk about pondering God in nature and pondering God in Scripture. And this is where they began the tradition of meditating on the Scripture and saying, how can I turn toward God? How can I turn toward Him? I want to awaken your imagination a little bit this morning and think about what this might look like just in an everyday sort of way. 
I mean, think about the moment when someone irritates you or something frustrates you. Right away, there is a deadly thought probably at work in your mind, you know, a thought of vainglory that says, I deserve better than this, and how dare they, and I'll show them, and, I'll, and all of a sudden, you have the choice. Am I going to turn toward that thought, or am I going to turn away from it and toward God? Our Old Testament reading this morning was from Psalm 27, and it talked about, you know, the psalmist says, you said, seek your face, Lord, and your face will I seek. The verses right before that, in verse 4, the psalmist says, one thing have I desired, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty. I love how David Perkins, our youth pastor, and the desperation stuff, the emphasis for our young people is not to say, stop doing that and don't do that, and do, because turning away is not enough, is it? There's not, it, you, can, you can tell yourself your whole life, okay, I won't do that, okay, I won't do that, okay, that's bad, okay, that's destructive. It's not, the, the, repentance is much larger than that. It's not just turning away, it's turning toward and saying, you, Lord, are better than life. Your love, O oh Lord, is better than life. You satisfy me with good things. You are enough. I've been in a class this summer at Fuller Seminary on some of the early spiritual traditions and practices, and one of the books I had to read was St. Augustine's Confessions. Augustine was this guy, as it turns out, that, uh, how shall I say this delicately, because we have kids in the room. I mean, let's say he had a problem that might have been called an addiction that related to how he uh, interacted with women. Let's say it that way. And, 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 uh, and Augustine couldn't stop. He couldn't stop. And, and, and every time, he said, he said, when I was a young man, I prayed, Lord, teach me chastity, but not too soon. <laughs> because I like this. I want this. And it's only when he finds the glory of God and his love that all of a sudden those things begin to fall off and he finds freedom. He writes of his conversion this way and he says, For love of your love, Lord, will I recount my wicked ways, he says. Because I'm not interested in retelling you all my wickedness for the sake of glorifying my sinful life, but for love of your love, will I confess my sin? Turning away, turning toward. So the question then is, okay, so if that is what repentance is, then why? Why would we do this? Why would we turn away from and why would we turn toward? And this is maybe where our memories of church and our background kind of haunts us because we weren't given much of a why, maybe. I remember as a kid, the only why I was given was because you don't want to burn. What more do you need? <laughs> you know? And you can imagine in, in, in the imagination of a young child, that's haunting. You know? It's like, okay, no, I don't want to burn. Okay, I'll turn. <laughs> Why turn toward God? I want us to think about three things this morning. First, we turn toward God because He is just. Because He is just. We believe there's something about who He is that we have to give an answer to Him. Now, it's interesting, justice, you know. Justice is a, is a big word to us. It's a big word in our culture. It's a big word for lots of people, even people who are not of faith. Justice is a, is a wonderful way to start the conversation with someone about God because even if people don't believe in God, people believe there should be justice. And maybe if you talk to some people 
who, um, depending on the circles you hang around with, or, the, or the, maybe it's a generational thing, I'm not sure exactly where this, the, these lines are, but some of us, when we think about justice, we think about, yes, terrorists. We've got to bring those terrorists to justice. And there's tr- that's true. There's something in us that says, yes, we need justice for all the bad people in the world. But others of you, when you think about justice, you think about human trafficking, and you think about poverty, and you think about the exploitation of greedy corporations, and you say, justice must be done to these guys. It's interesting because whatever line of the political thing you land on, we, we, we both, in a, in a real way, are crying out for justice. But what we often forget, or what we easily forget, is that we ought to be careful what you really ask for. Because when you say, justice, God, bring justice, God, we forget where we land. He who is without sin cast the first stone. If God the just were to truly judge wickedness, where do you think you land in that group? Because none of us escape that. None of us get out of that. You want the God of justice to bring justice? Tremble, because it includes you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian uh, novelist who was exiled into Siberia, and he wrote this, a couple little books. One was, the, one was a, not a little book, uh, The Gulag Archipelago, and the other is the, um, uh, A Day in the Life of Alexander, uh, no, Ivan Denisovich. Yeah. Um, and in, in his thicker book, he has this quote in there, and he says, The line between good and evil runs not between nations and states, but in every human heart. You want the God of justice to bring justice? Look out, you're on the wrong side of this. And this, I think, is something we don't tremble enough at because then we want to say, okay, well, well, God, would you just be merciful, God? Would you just be merciful to me? But then the question is, well, if he's merciful to you, why shouldn't he be merciful to them? Uh, because I'm better? Because I'm American? Okay, well, Why? And you finally have to unravel this whole argument until you say, you know what? We need a God who is just. But that's kind of bad news for us because we are doomed. Martin Luther wrestled with this as a young monk because he, he, he began to read the book of Romans and he began to realize that God's justice means he would judge the sinner. And then Luther writes, he says, and I became angry and I hated this God because I realized that even though I was an impeccable monk, monk, Luther writes, that I could never be purely innocent before this God. And if God is just, then I am doomed. And Luther says this made him hate God. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. Or maybe you know people who can relate to that, who all we've heard is God is just, God is just. And then they say, well, I don't want him because that's awful news. I hate a God who would do that. But we don't stop here this morning to say we turn toward God because He is just. We also turn toward God because He is merciful. But how? How can God be just and merciful? What we behold when we behold the cross, when we look at the cross and we imagine on it Jesus, what we behold when we behold the cross is it's the cross is the place where God's justice and God's mercy meets. The cross is the place where God's justice 
and God's mercy meet. Why? Because Jesus takes upon Himself every wickedness, all that is sick and wrong and wicked and evil in the world, and takes it upon Himself. And God says, I will deal with evil. I will judge wickedness. And I do it in the form of My Son. Why? So that God can say, mercy now can flow to all who are in Jesus. We don't want a God who is only merciful and not just because then we don't know who's getting off the hook and who's not. We don't want a God who is only just and not merciful or we have, we're in trouble. But we have a God who is both just and merciful because of Jesus. A God who in His own person took upon Himself justice so that mercy could flow. That is wonderful news. When Luther realized this, this is what he wrote in, his, in one of his commentaries. He says, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see Him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. Think of that. He who sees God as fundamentally angry has drawn a cloud over his face. A curtain. Because in Jesus we see a God who is just and merciful. Thanks be to God. Amen? And then we move on and we say, well... It's nice. How can I do this? We turn to God because He's just, because He's merciful. We turn to God because He gives us the grace to do it. The language of Luke in Acts is a beautiful phrase. God has granted them the repentance that leads to life. Repentance, the way the New Testament talks about it, is a gift. It's a grace. It's something God gives to us. It means that everything about the Christian life begins and ends and is sustained by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not this message of God saying, okay, Michael, uh, thank you for repenting. Can you take it from here now? You You better be good now or else. But it's God saying, I began this. I'll complete this. I'll make it, I'll sustain it all the way through. Maybe why repentance is a bad word to us is because we think of repentance as, sorry, I'll do better. And you know deep down, you can't. (laughs) And so we don't want to face repentance because why say sorry for something I can't change? And so then we say, well, maybe it's not even wrong. Maybe there is no God. Maybe He's not just because I can't change this and so this must be okay. Instead of saying, wait, God, Repentance is not, God, I'm sorry, I'll do better. Repentance is, God has given me the grace to turn away and to turn toward. And as I turn toward, His Spirit begins to work in us and change us and shape us over and over again. The Gospel is not a second chance. It's not. I know that's a popular Christian way to talk about it. We're people of the second chance. We're second chance. The Gospel is not a second chance. Because a second chance implies that you could do it. You don't need a second chance at something that you can't do. 
You can give me all the chances you want to work the pummel horse like the gymnastics were do, the gymnasts were doing last night. I'll never do it. The pummel horse is a funny Olympic event. Anyway, okay. <laughs> what, is that what it's called? That's what it's called, right? Pummel something? Yeah, any, anyway. A second chance to do something you can't do is not good news. The gospel is only good news if there is grace abounding towards you to bring you from dead to alive. It's not good news if it's just a second chance to do something that's impossible. So when you think of repentance this way, it's a turning away and a turning toward, something that we, we do because God is just, because God is merciful, because God has turned toward us, then all of a sudden repentance is really something we keep doing. It's something that is in our normal rhythm of life. It's not, oh yeah, I repented five years ago when I gave my heart to Jesus down at that altar. It's the way we breathe out and breathe in. It's the way we keep living. Continuous turning toward Christ. This morning in the 9 a.m., my daughters were here and I asked them permission to do this. And they're not here now, so it's going to be less dramatic. But imagine... Sometimes they do things they're not supposed to do. And um, one of their favorite things to do is to hop on the counter, open the cupboard where the bread is, and make their own peanut butter sandwich. And once in a while, something will go wrong, like a plate will fall, or the knife will fall, or whatever, and they'll turn to me because they know they've done something wrong. In the same way that we turn toward God because He is just. And so they turn to me like, Did He see And what will he say? And that's a little bit like us when we have found ourselves in a wrong way and we turn toward God. Did he see? And what will he do? On a bad day, when I call to them, when I've heard the racket, they continue to turn away from me. And they walk away. And on a good day, I keep calling to them. On a good day, I keep walking after them. Until at some point I get down on my knee and say, Sophia, Nora, it's okay, come here. And finally they turn to me. And on a good day, what they see in my face is a face that says, it's okay. I love you. Let's talk. What happened? What's going on? What do you need? I'll make you a sandwich. Why are you trying to do this on your own? Can you imagine the parallels here? Sometimes we imagine the gospel to be that God and man were in relationship with one another and they faced one another. And then man turned away from God and God said, me too. (laughs) When what Genesis says is when Adam and Eve turn away from God, what does God do in the garden? Adam, where are you? All through the Old Testament, when when He calls Israel to be His people and they turn away from Him, God keeps calling after them through every prophet, through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and all the prophets. It's God saying, come here, come here, come here, until finally God says, okay, enough just calling after you with a prophet. I'm coming after you with my son. And God Himself comes low and draws near and says, stop the madness. I'll take it all on myself. And his arms are ever outstretched toward us saying, 
I have turned my face toward you. Will you turn your face toward me? That is why we do this. Not because we're trying to please or impress or whatever, but because God has ever turned His face toward us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 17-18 in the message describes what happens when we get in this rhythm of daily turning toward Christ. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of His face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah and our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. That's amazing. Something happens as we continually turn away and turn toward. Turn away and turn toward. Something happens where His face shines on us and our face begins to shine. You know, it is sort of this human psychology thing that we mirror back to people what their faces do to us. Like if I were to go to you like this, you can't, you start to smile. I mean, you should see your faces sometime on a Sunday morning. And if I go like this, you go like this, you know. (laughs) Imagine when you behold the face of Christ full of grace and truth, John 1 said. And it radiates to us the love of God. And all of a sudden our faces begin to radiate and smile. And then you go out into the world and you see someone who's caught in sin. And you don't have this face, but you have this face. And you begin to radiate love and light and forgiveness. Because we ourselves have turned away and turned toward. Amen?